0: Welcome
1: to the Painting of the Week podcast, where we look at some of the most significant paintings throughout history. Introducing your hosts, Phil Grabsky and Laura Bentham. Welcome to this week's Painting of the Week. And it's a slightly unusual one this week because I am out and about, not with Laura. And in fact, I am in the United States with Elizabeth Thompson who is an independent scholar uh, of Edward and Joe Hopper and curator of an exhibition that I'm currently in at the Hopper House, or the Hoppers' house, in Nyack, which is about, what, 20 miles north Mm. of New York? Uh, It's a very beautiful spot. It's a fabulous house, and it's a lovely exhibition. And we're going to talk about a particular painting, which is called Railroad, no it's not, yes it is, it's called Railroad Gates, Gloucester, 1928. And it's painted by, not by Edward Hopper, but by his wife, Josephine Niverson Hopper, who we're going to talk about. But first of all, Elizabeth, why, and I have to say there are lots of really nice paintings or watercolours here by Joe, why have you chosen this one?
0: It's an excellent work of art. It's beautifully crafted. It's an excellent example of the quality of Jo's uh, artistry. She was a a beautiful watercolor painter. Her watercolor paintings were highly regarded in her lifetime. Um, It's also a seminal work in that when it was first discovered, it established definitively that the Hoppers did, in fact, paint side by side. Uh, These paintings were discovered recently, just in 2000, at the home of a private collector who was a Hopper family friend. And prior to that, Hopper had really crafted this image of himself as this solitary soul. Um, And many things he wrote and interviews he gave, he spoke of being alone in this location and alone in that location location. Well, close to a dozen of these watercolors by Joe came out of the basement of a private collector's home, and lo and behold, they are identical compositions to works painted by her husband. Now, here at the exhibition, um, in addition to Joe's view of the railroad gates in Gloucester from 1928, we have a reproduction of Edward's identical painting of the railroad gates from 1928, and the comparison is extraordinary.
1: So let me just point out, I'm sure you all know by now, but if you go to 7th-art.com and you go to the podcast uh, part of the website, you'll see both the pictures. You'll see Joe's and alongside it, you'll see Edward's. So you can uh, make your um, own comparison.
0: So what's interesting about the work, and as the curator of the exhibition, I have to say, um, we after the watercolors emerged, two things occurred. One was the realization that, Ora, that Jo was a significant artist in her own right. Um, prior to the discovery of this body of work, I'd been looking for Jo's work for well over a decade. And for the most part, it had been dispersed after she passed. They did not have children. And the work of both Edward and Joe went into various different collections and Joe's work um either was given away, or in some cases, destroyed, basically lost is what I kept hearing. So this body of work, the emergence of this body of work was extraordinary, not only for um, the reestablishing of her career, also in addition to the work, there were notebooks that she kept listing exhibitions that she had taken part in. And um, she had a very significant exhibition record. She was showing with all the most prominent American modernists of the day. I should also say for anyone who's interested in 2004, um, after studying this body of work and also other works by Joe that were located at the Whitney Museum, I published an article in the Women's Art Journal. And a lot of what I'm sharing now is documented in that article in 2004. It's the rediscovery of Josephine Nivison Hopper. So the work on one level established her as the artist in her own right that we uh, hadn't been able to study. But again, it, it positioned her right next to her very famous husband. And so it was the opportunity to see what is and was a two-artist marriage. And up until now, that hadn't been possible.
1: Obviously, the, the most famous paintings of Hopper are those scenes of New York, <clears throat> excuse me, those scenes of New York Nighthawks and so many others. Is there evidence that she has been alongside him in those environments, or are those pictures much more constructed in the studio and she's in her own studio doing something completely different. And now what we are we really talking about when they came up out of New York in the summer months, so it's a slightly different time of year where they would sit next to each other and paint. Um, so this is very much something that only happens, as I say, in the, in the summer
0: an excellent question. And most of the examples of them painting side by side have emerged during their travels. In this case, they were in Gloucester before they married. Um, they built a home in Truro on Cape Cod and they were spent six months of the year in Truro for 30 some odd years until they passed. And um, many of the side by side paintings were done there as well, as they were on their travels through the Southwest. Um, so no, and it's an excellent point about New York. City. City because Hopper didn't paint on site in New York City, meaning he wasn't sitting on the sidewalk painting what he saw across from him. The word constructed, I believe, is is the one Phil used, and that's an excellent example. He did lots of sketches and then went back to the studio and and basically constructed the the finished image. Now, with that said, the images that are identical or similar are the views from their home. Um, They lived uh, on Washington Square Park, and there are um, the apartment they lived in is still there. It's on by New York University, can be visited on occasion by appointment. But there are views that they both did of the interior of their apartment at Washington Square and window views. So there are some Washington Square views where they were both drawing the same thing. But to the best of my knowledge, they were not finished as watercolors or work that was exhibited. But they did sketch side by side.
1: Now I have watched uh, an online presentation about the works of Edward and Joe, and an example was given where they're painting next to each other. But uh, in this particular occasion, there was a real sense of, but you can see that Edward is the better painter. (laughs) And I just wondered what your view is of -hmm. of that. And and indeed, take this example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know who had painted which, would you be able to say immediately, Yeah. That's Joe, and that's Edward.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Edward's a bit better here, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or would that not be your response?
0: It's a fabulous question, and it's one that I am often asked when I've lectured in various different places, and the question always comes up. And not to be totally caress, it is often framed by, well, how much is his worth and how much is hers worth? And uh, in my slideshow, I have other examples of paintings that are, in fact, identical. And his is a, I think they're going for $90 million. Um, His is something that would be in the $30 million range, and Joe's work, whenever it's shown, is valuable. In the five to ten thousand dollar range. We have no record of recent sales, and so therefore we have to go back to what they were approximately worth in her lifetime. Um, better is a hard word to define. Um, even in Joe's lifetime, um, the critics, the uh, gallery, um, uh, owners who were handling Ed's work, on occasion did show hers. And there are a few famous quotes, one from, I believe it was from Frank Rand or John Clancy, both of whom were Hopper's dealer at one point. And they came and looked at her work and they said, she's a good painter. She's a good painter, but he's a great painter. And so the question becomes, um, again, back to the word better. Now, a couple of uh, other thoughts on that. I've, again, shown Joe's work to numerous people in the years since I found a professional museum curators. One has said, well, yeah, her work is damn good if it could pass for his, so let's look at it that way. Um, we also have to contextualize it with the, within the life of women artists in the 1920s. Who was being shown? Who was being looked at? Now, again, her exhibition record was very substantial. She was shown with John Merritt, Charles Prendergast, all the major American modernists um, included, Joe was included in their exhibitions. I just found a, a document recently that confirms Charles Birchfield, who's the subject of a big exhibition at the Whitney, his first exhibition in New York City was a two-person show with Joe Hopper. Joe on one wall, Charles Birchfield on the other. So a lot of it is... um, of retelling the story. The judgments we make now based on what we see on the wall, those judgments are contextualized within what we have known for past decades or what we think we knew. And now there's new work and the story is being told and the exhibition record is emerging, so on and so forth. Short answer is this he was a much better oil painter than Joe was. She was, watercolor was her strength. And the other piece we can't leave out is that he didn't paint in watercolor until they started courting in Gloucester in the summer of 1923. Prior to that, he was not a watercolor painter. And he came asking her to go out on sketching trips and they started painting watercolor together. And then when they came back to New York, his watercolors were shown at the Brooklyn Museum. He sold the first painting he'd sold in 10 years. And Frank Wren came in, saw his watercolors, gave him an exhibit. It sold out, and his career skyrocketed all over painting watercolors with Joe in Gloucester in the summer of 1923.
1: It it does also raise that very important area and question about the extent to which value is attributed to what we think we know of somebody's biography and personality, and indeed their gender. Mm -hmm. So if these pictures arrived on the market and nobody knew who they were by... You know whether they would be valued at five to ten thousand dollars or ninety one million dollars, and of course that's part of the ambition of a film is to i guess to some extent tell the story of an artist and clearly with with a film about Edward Hopper that includes telling the story of Joe as fresh in as fresh a way as we can um in as accurate a way as we can presenting the pictures. When they uh, when they arrive, and trying to divorce divorce ourselves from the sense of oh here's this this one's sold for ninety nine ninety one million dollars, and this one's sold for thirty million dollars, and um, I just wonder with these two, when you talk about him being a better oil painter or her being a better or being very accomplished as a watercolorist. What are, the, what are the differences? What, what should we, when we're looking at these paintings, what should we see? I mean, it's the same scene. So what has she done that he hasn't? What has he done that she hasn't?
0: Excellent question, and it's interesting too. You again, you'll see them on the screen together. But the biggest difference in all these pairings, and there are many that came out of the basement that show them side by side, the biggest difference is the palette. And um, his, as you can see, is dark earth tones. He really never moved away from the rusts and the sepia's and the browns and the charcoals and even his greens. Everything is very sort of muted and somber. That was his palette. It was his palette his entire life. Though one of my in this exhibition is that later on um, his, cut, his palette does become more infused with color. And that color clearly was influenced by Joe. Now Joe, from the beginning, given her background, she had studied with American Impressionists, uh, Ambrose Webster up on Cape Cod. So she was a brilliant colorist. And again, the uh, artist she was showing with in New York watercolor painters. And at that point, many of the major American modernist painters were working in watercolor. And the palette I use the words poetic lyrical. I can describe it to you you'll see it in the in the photograph but the the, the turquoise shades in the windows and the, the salmon and sort of fuchsia colors on the chimneys. I mean the range of colors there are rich yellows and blues and greens and that that sort of wall in the foreground that has again that sort of salmony pink color. So her palette was always always bright. Now if we were at that location do we think that the, the window shades were turquoise and the chimney had a hint of fuchsia? Probably not. But at the same time, I look at Edwards, and I described this in the article I wrote, uh, it, it, it looks like the Southwest. It looks like adobe. You know, the, the now granted, the brightness of, the, sh- of the, the highlights and the darkness of the shadows are sort of signature Ed. But the other point that I make is he handles, even at this point, and he'd only been painting watercolor for about four years, he handles watercolor like gouache. There's a density, there's an opacity, Opacity to the way he's handling watercolor here that is totally different from the way Joe paints. Joe paints with washes. She works with lots of water. You can see she controls them, but she builds up her surface like the grassy area in the front of the painting. Those are layered washes. Now, in his case, again, I keep going back to gouache, there's a density and an opacity. To the way he handles watercolor, that it could be an oil. It could easily be an oil, and so that difference in technique, even though he's using watercolor, and it, it took some time. His later watercolors um, do have more of the feeling of the fluidity that we associate with the watercolor medium, but uh, but not in not in this work.
1: Can you explain for people what gouache?
0: Yes, gouache is a water-based pigment that's dense. It's it's dense and it's it's thicker. So it is water-based. It's not as thick as oil, um, and it's easier to manipulate because it's not an oil-based or an acrylic-based. But it's it's dense and so and dense and opaque. So gouache, when you're working with gouache, it's almost like a very heavy tempera. That's what I I would say the best comparison. But there's no uh, way you can do a loose fluid wash with with gouache. It just isn't just doesn't permit and some of the areas here where the the darker brown buildings over on the right even the way he paints the uh, the sort of house beneath the uh, beneath the, or next to the railroad tracks all of that does not feel like watercolor. it doesn't have the fluidity. The only area that does really is the foreground with the grass. But uh, the palette is very different. The handling of the paint is very different.
1: Is the um, size of the canvas the same?
0: Yes, that's interesting. The hoppers were notoriously frugal. So yes, um, they painted, they bought all the paper in exactly the same size. And in some cases, they trim a little bit here or there, but otherwise they're identical in size. Though what is interesting, there's another example here where they painted the same view and she painted hers with the paper vertically and he painted um, his with the paper horizontal and the anecdote about that Joe may have even commented was that he was six five uh, or a little bit taller and she was barely five feet. So she painted vertically to have a canvas that soared up and he <laughs> painted horizontally to have the feeling of being closer low to the ground. So uh, that, that was interesting.
1: And do you know why they were in Gloucester?
0: Yes. Summer of 1928. Um, They had first been to Gloucester in 1924 um, after they married. In fact, it was very funny. After they had dated in Gloucester in 23, started courting, they went back to New York and they were keeping company. In 1924, they were deciding where they would go. And, And artists in New York City all went to various seaside locales for the summer to paint. And Joe wanted to go to Provincetown, and Ed wanted to go to Gloucester. I believe it was on the 9th of July, 1924. And um, Joe said, I'll go to Gloucester if we get married today. (laughs) And they got married that day. And so they went to Gloucester, yes. And that was in in 1924. And then they returned in 1928. Again, it was a popular location, Um, not to make it all about one's income, but the 24 Gloucester watercolors were very popular. There was a market for them with the dealers in New York. So they may have gone back in 28 thinking this is a good source for us, but it was also a thriving art community. Many artists were there. They were welcomed. There were cheap boarding houses where they could stay. So I think in fact it's an interesting question because it opens up the larger issue of subject matter in Hopper's art and we do know throughout his life he agonized over subjects. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he did a painting a year simply because he couldn't find anything. And Joe would write at length about, "Oh, we drove here. He didn't see anything. I took him there. I thought we'd pick this or that." So his process of choosing something that would speak to him um, was was an arduous one. And the fact that he did this many in Gloucester meant it was appealing.
1: I, I find that extraordinary about Hopper. That length of time—I can't imagine wandering around for a year before taking a photograph. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, Obviously the relationship between them is something that the film explores and is really interesting and really important. in you're the you know preeminent scholar in this area. so do you imagine on this day that Joe is kind of trailing behind Edward with the easel? I'm like both of them have got their easels on their backs and mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. their materials in, in some you know, bag around their shoulders or whatever. And do you think she's getting frustrated? She's like, Edward, this is just stop here. This, mm-hmm. this is fine. That's mm-hmm. It. Mm-hmm. Or do you think it's the two of them? Or do you think that she's the one mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. and he goes, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how yeah. collaborative mm-hmm. 50-50 is it or... Is it Edward saying, no, no, I it's not good enough, it's not good enough. No, all right, here. And she's like, oh, fine, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sit next to you and I'll paint the same thing.
0: It's a great question, and it opens up a few different areas for, uh, for response. Um, one of them was that uh, they had a car, and um, at one point Joe had a minor bump on the car and um after that ed would not allow mm-hmm. her to drive so she was limited to painting the locations he chose now the um the other part of it is that Which
1: we should add was something that she really railed
0: against. yes oh she did she, she
1: railed thoroughly fed it. up
0: yeah thoroughly not fed being up.
1: allowed to drive yes
0: yeah. thoroughly fed up and the other part of it was that um One of the, again, one of the, what's significant about the emergence of this work and this whole idea of the two artists' marriage and of them being side by side is exactly that. In other words, when it came to the subject matter, the short answer would be he chose them. Um, the other point is, and Joe wrote about this, their primary source of income was his work. If he's not producing those years when he did one oil, we have all the correspondence where Frank Rand, his dealer, is writing and saying, I've got an empty space on the wall. There isn't going to be any money coming in this year. The med is waiting for him to finish something. And so Joe was very conscious of that. So I think as much as she may have felt drawn to one. In fact, there are several pieces here where clearly they were locations she could walk to. They were staying in Charleston together. He went over to one side of the town, she went to the other. So, um, but when it came to um, specific locations that they had to possibly get to by car, or again, this is early on, this is only four years after they were married. And so at this point, um, she was not as inclined to insert her independence okay. in saying that, well, I want to go and do do my own space.
1: So, So it's plausible that he's... Painting this thinking I have to do something. Yes for, for the sale. Yes. And she's just walking with him and she's like, well, while you're doing that, I'm gonna do this.
0: Yes, yeah, location. that could definitely be part of it. It's a great question because as much as I know in depth about Joe's work, I've looked at everything extant and I've read everything, is that um, I do not know that she would have chosen that locale. It's mm-hmm. a little too angular for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a lot of sort of mechanical details and she's much more sort of about flowers and gardens and blowing skies. So I it's a great question because I haven't pondered it before, But for example, in Nivison work, they didn't marry until she was 40. And so she was well-established in her own vision as Jo Nivison before she uh, took up with another mature artist. And um, in my own mind, I often compare Nivison versus Hopper because her style did evolve. And that would not have been a subject that Joe would have chosen.
1: I mean, one of the things that strikes me immediately is that Hopper's work is the work of somebody that is very alert. I mean, everyone talks about the light, of course, but what light does is it gives you angles Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, um, geometry. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are some films, for example, that look better in black and white because you're not distracted by the color. Yes. It's all about the light. Um, You know, I know people who say, oh, I I don't like black and white films. Well, they're insane because if you watch certain black Mm -hmm. and white films, they are so well made. Because it's all about the way in which that scene is is uh, organized and lit, and the way the posi- actors are positioned, and so on and so forth. You can almost imagine Hopper being quite content as a filmmaker to work in black and white. With Joe's work, I don't see that. What I see with Joe is is that exploration and, and enjoyment of color.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I mean, we talk about on the podcast. We do talk about color theory. Quite a lot. Don't need to get into that here, but you can see that she's thought. Well, what is what is the most appropriate colour to have of those chimneys? Mm -hmm. Because, as you say, they probably aren't that colour. Or, you know, certainly, if you look at, you know, there's a difference between Edward's work and Joe's work as to the colour of the shutters and Mm everything is different, really, even the colour of the buildings themselves. So it's a different approach, and I guess the subsequent question is. To what extent, and this is dangerous territory, but to what extent does that reflect their personality?
0: That's exactly what I was going to interrupt you to make sure I had to say before we finish up. It is crucial. And in all the research I've done, and i published one article and I've got a book on its way uh, to hopefully to publication soon, and I discuss this at great length. uh, The personalities are so evident in the work. Uh, To describe Joe's work as lyrical and colorful and poetic and, and all of those are adjectives we'd use to describe her. She was chatty, she was cheerful, she was personable, she loved life, she loved the world, uh, engaging in every possible way. And that is absolutely the, the sentiment that comes through. Now, at the same time, um, she did study, her, her studies were with, with American Impressionist painters. And so the palette and the brushwork definitely comes, you know, from, from those origins. So that was her training, but it was also suited to her temperament. That's one of my premises in terms of who is this woman as an artist she's an artist who paints from her own soul, her own worldview, and it is passionate and cheerful, despite the fact that some of her most cheery, buoyant paintings were done during very difficult times in her life. Ed, on the other hand, go back to childhood. He was shy, he was withdrawn, he was um, introverted. Um, Not that he saw the world as a dark place, but um, he did not have uh, the kind of um, embrace of of the world as as a colorful place. And again, the emphasis on on the geometry, angularity, all of that was, was very much in keeping with, uh, with his character. And even, and I don't like to say it in a pejorative way. And when I've written about it, I've chosen other words, but for the purpose of, of casual conversation, gloomy and dour are words that are used repeatedly to, to, to describe his palette when you, especially compared to Joe's, but even his works in their own right, the, the colors are dark and, and gloomy. Now you do have that raking bright sunlight, but it's only almost too bright. There's a there's a sharpness mm, to it that yeah. makes it feel like this wouldn't be such a comfortable place to occupy. Mm. But everything about the way he paints, he paints as an expression of, again, of his worldview. One other thing I just wanted to say quickly, and I will um, give you access to the images if you like. Um, he did a series of caricatures, little drawings of mm. the hoppers together, and one of them shows them going off to paint. And he's about seven feet tall, and she comes up literally to his <laughs> elbow, and he is carrying her easel under his arm, and she's holding her paint box. It's adorable. And you see them from behind, and they're on their way to paint the South Truro Church in the distance. But yeah, very much so.
1: Two more things. First thing is, when I first talked to somebody about making a film about Hopper, this particular person's reaction was, well, that's going to be a struggle because he never says anything, and he's a miserable old (laughs) so-and-so. actually... The one thing that's really struck me more than anything else... Actually, there's a couple of things that have struck me about Hopper. One is there's so much more to Hopper than New York. The New York images, which are so popular, there's so much more to him and his art. But the other thing is, actually, he may not have written or been interviewed or spoken as frequently as other artists, but when he does... It's very articulate. It's very interesting. It's actually quite revealing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's not as closed off. I mean there's plenty of quotes where he talks about his his process and and how, you know, his art is a reflection of, of his inner world and or um what's the other one, you know, if I could say it in words I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Pay. I mean he's, he's I, I didn't paint. need to paint it. Yeah. Be. Um And actually, even the short snippets of his interviews, I I mean, Mm -hmm. he looks a bit uncomfortable, but he's actually quite funny at times. Yes. So actually, there's much more to him
0: it has been said that measured is the word often used to describe he chose his words carefully yeah. unlike others who babble incessantly and that yeah. was said about joe but that uh, there has been an equation made between the way he painted and the way he spoke um it's been pointed out and again when you have the opportunity to see these original works as i have when i've studied them every brushstroke is deliberate if there's a blade of grass yeah, blowing yeah. to the right, the brush stroke goes to the right. Yeah. There's Everything is very, very carefully and methodically planned, no matter how spontaneous it might appear. But that, that deliberation um, is, is paramount in, in terms of his style. He did many preparatory sketches and drawings. So by the time he got to the painting, everything was going exactly where it should, as I think his words. His words were few, but mm. very carefully chosen.
1: Well, that also comes across. He's absolutely consumed, isn't he, by... I mean we talk about artists having a passion for their craft, but this is a man who is totally consumed by the act of painting and again, you read you know the books that he reads, the French philosophy and poetry, and taking aid, you know going to try and find exactly the right sky or the right dog or i mean you know I've dealt with so many artists who go to extremes, but this is somebody who it, it's quite noticeable, like you say, you know the just the right Brush stroke for a blade of grass it's quite something let me finish by saying it's wonderful to be in the house in which he's born and this is where your exhibition is I mean how important is, is an understanding and appreciation of, of this building of his parents of Nyack of where we are on the Hudson River mm-hmm. um, which is gorgeous by the way in understanding the biography, but more to the point, understanding is art.
0: Absolutely, and I should say just by way of history, um, I've curated a couple or two or three exhibitions here at Hopper's house. I first came in 2011 um, and they were doing, I believe it was the 40th anniversary of the people of Nyack saving the house from the wrecking ball. And uh, they saved the house as a historic uh, home. It has national designation. Uh, National Historic Trust, and um, when I came in to do that exhibition for the 40th anniversary, I was asked what I would, how I would go about it, and um, I it was the first time I'd really given it much thought. And the more I studied and shared, also my observations with other Hopper scholars, we all came to the conclusion that um, these, the years he spent here were are absolutely critical. In fact, that exhibition was called Prelude and uh, the Niak Years, and the premise was that. Um, really, the artist he became, as I think we've spoken about earlier, um, and Hopper actually said that, the seeds are sown. The curatorial statement for that exhibition was basically written by Hopper, and he said the seeds are sown. And um, every, again, not to make it all about multi-million dollar, but many of the uh, paintings he made later in his life his masterworks, Victorian houses, storefronts, small town USA. You can find those identical views in in the town of Nyack. Uh, The other thing that's interesting is he He had a home bedroom here, um, into his 20s. He did not permanently relocate to New York City until he was almost 30. So he was back and forth to Nyack when he was to and from Paris. So it was very much a home base. So it's not as if he left and never returned. But the seeds were sown here for the mature masterworks. There's no doubt about it. And it's interesting that now the house is getting the recognition and the profile that it deserves. And again, when I was invited to the exhibition, it was revelatory for me. And and any one looking at Hopper since then has come to the same conclusion. You can't understand who he became if you don't understand where he came from. And again, that is very much the charming town of Nyack mm. on the banks of the Hudson, visible from Hopper's bedroom upstairs.
1: And a very, very easy day trip from New York. Easy-ish. Um, your book that you're currently writing, uh, has it got a title? Will, I mean, if people want to get hold of that Mm -hmm. Do you know when it's likely to be are, uh, you know are you gonna set yourself now you're gonna <laughs> say it's gonna be ready by X
0: yes, yes yes I'm gonna tell my editor that's the date um, I would think summer 23 in fact when we first talked about the uh, projects that are surrounding the exhibition and the uh, the films that are being done uh, we were thinking 23 it's for the most part written um, it is written part of the challenge is that a good deal of the book is going to focus on Joe and it's looking at uh, her looking at the two artists marriage and this is, in fact, as a closing thought, um, when I first discovered her work and started writing about her, I was spoken to with scorn when I was called a revisionist feminist art historian. You're one of those revisionist feminist art historians. And I said, well, the woman's work literally landed in my lap. I thought it was interesting and worthy, and i have been working on it for more than a decade. But then just recently, I was speaking with one of the curators at the Whitney and a few other people, and they said, with great praise, you're a revisionist, feminist artist." Story. <laughs> so look, over the arc of time, it's gone from being scorned, scorned to being praised. And all that means is that the Jo, like so many other women artists of her generation who were forgotten and lost, um, has, is reemerging. And not only is she reemerging as an artist, well-deserving of the rest recognition but she's helping us to retell to revise if you will to recontextualize the story of edward hopper and that is uh, that is significant uh, in and of itself
1: thank you very much thank you for listening to the painting of the week podcast for more information please visit our website at seventh art.com or contact us by emailing info at seventh art.com see you next time